0: If you want to pump your body and expand your mind, there's only one place to go. Mind Pump. Mind Pump. With your hosts, Sal Stefano, Adam Schaefer, and Justin Andrews.
1: So this is going to be a fun one for a lot of the audience that loves bodybuilding talk, your your technical bodybuilding talk. I love this conversation. I would had a lot of people that had reached out and told me that we had to get connected to Dr. Scott Stevenson. And uh, we had a few mutual friends, reached out. He flew out to the studio and hung out and just had a great, great conversation with him.
2: Yeah, it was very technical. It's like most of the conversation is about muscle building, hypertrophy. Uh, I think we talked about anabolics uh, a little bit in this episode. So if you're really interested in the intricacies of building muscle and you like muscle talk, you're gonna love this episode. Now, now, Dr. Scott Stevenson, super, super smart guy, one of the smarter guys uh, in our space. His website is dot com. So B Y O B B coach.com. He has his own podcast called Muscle Minds. Um, and the website for that is advicesradio.com. And then he wrote a book called Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach. And then finally you can find him on Instagram at Fortitude underscore training. So we think you're going to enjoy this episode. Uh, before it starts, I do want to remind everybody that MAPS Anywhere is 50% off. Now remember, MAPS Anywhere is the workout program designed to maximize your body's ability to build muscle, burn body fat, and improve its mobility without any gym equipment. So this workout, the entire workout can be done outdoors. It could be done at home. It could be done on the road in the hotel room. It's extremely effective, but it's very convenient again because you don't need any equipment. Now it's 50% off all month long. So if you go to mapswhite.com, that's M-A-P-S-W-H-I-T-E.com and use the code Anywhere50, anywhere 50 A-N-Y-W-H-E-R-E 50 no space, you'll get the 50% off discount for maps anywhere. So that's it. Without any further ado, here we are interviewing Dr. Scott Stevenson. What I found fascinating about you was your blend of uh, Eastern and Western influences. Yeah, with your because uh, you've got the Western education. Mm-hmm. PhD. What's your PhD in? Exercise physiology? Exercise physiology, yeah. And then you've got, you're also an acupuncturist mm-hmm. with the Chinese, understanding what, Chinese medicine and herbs and, and whatnot? Yeah,
3: I'm a, I'm a um, uh, Chinese herbalist, certified, nationally certified Chinese herbalist. I'm actually licensed in the state of Arizona as an acupuncturist. You can call yourself an acupuncture physician there. It's the legal title, but my, my license is inactive. There's no point in, I'm so busy with the bodybuilding things that there's no point in uh, trying to squeeze that in because the overhead of trying to run a full practice.
2: How, now, how did, how does do both of those impact what you do for bodybuilding? Like what are some things you've taken from both that have really contributed to your ability to put muscle on people?
3: Oh geez. There's like, I'm very, very open to herbs just in general. Um, I have to be careful. Like legally you can't do telemedicine as an acupuncturist or an herbalist Mm. um, because you need to see them in person. The nature of uh, the diagnostic techniques um, because this this was something that developed thousands of years ago, required that you see the person. Like the people, Some people are really good at facial diagnosis, for mm-hmm. instance. Mm-hmm. They can read the face and basically read your mind in the same way. Um, and so I, I can't do too much long distance, but I've figured out ways in which when someone gets sick, for instance, what kind of herbs they can, they're readily available. I'll load people up. I've been doing this for literally decades, load people up on echinacea and various herbs that have uh, antimicrobial actions. I just sent someone some, An herb called Banlan Gen, which is uh, uh, has a wide spectrum antimicrobial action, um, which is just a very common tea that people would drink in China. It's Kind of basic, basic stuff, but we don't know about it here. In, what, do you, the
2: what do you see in the face, like, or, or the? Do you do tongue? Do you look at the tongue also, and
3: tongue and pulse are the mainstays. Um, people, there's there are various schools of thought that have developed over the course of centuries, sort of at different time periods in the history of Chinese medicine. What we get in the U.S. Um, is kind of a generic combination, general practitioner type of Chinese medicine training. Um, If someone were to be functioning as a a Chinese medical practitioner in China, most of the time they're an internal medicine person, which means they're an herbalist. That's their focus. They know that back and forth. Mm -hmm. And you might go into a a complementary medicine situation where they've got Western medicine, Um, so the regular MDs in China. And then they'll have an acupuncturist who just does acupuncture, so it's a Chinese acupuncturist, and then herbalist who just does herbs, they might also funnel someone to do some uh, internal martial arts like qigong Gong or Tai Chi mm. as well, if that's what they see is needed. So there'll be different specialists in the U.S. You get trained. They just basically roll it all together. Mm. So it's about a 3,000-hour long program with clinical and didactic training. It takes – it's a four-year program, but they squeeze it down into three because you go continuously. Well. What what actually even interested you in
1: going and in getting into Easter Mission after you already have your PhD over here? What what drove you that direction? Uh, that's a great question.
3: So I was uh, an assistant. I was at Cal Poly Pomona, down the road from you guys here. Love that mm-hmm. college. Yeah, yeah. So I was an assistant professor there, and I was trying to figure out. I had the opportunity to do research and try to like toss my my pennies in the giant pool of the research uh, literature, and I and I and I love doing research, but I realized where can I do the most good for people? Where can I basically have my the greatest impact on the world? And I wanted to be able to reach out as much as possible, interact with people. I've been a, a personal trainer, a coach for years. And I wanted to be able to do um, just nutritional interventions. So if someone were to come in, let's say, and do some research work, do some sort of a community outreach type of thing in the lab there at the school, you just have them exercise. You don't address the nutrition. Or you're just you're, you're pissing in the wind, pardon my mm-hmm. French. Mm-hmm. So... I was thinking about becoming a registered dietitian and then I started looking into other ways legally that I could actually do nutritional interventions. And in California, acupuncture is gigantic, same as it is in Florida. So I looked into acupuncture and I started looking around um, for different schools. And actually I took a sabbatical. I had a leave of absence from Cal Poly Pomona to go and become, or start my training in acupuncture. I took some classes there in, in California at South Baylor University, and then I went to Tucson and started training there. And then I sort of decided, you know, I, I, this is where my path needs to lead me, is is stepping out of academia. I still dabble a little bit um, as an adjunct, for instance, at University of Tampa. It's hard to get back in. Once you sort of leave and burn that bridge, mm. like going back into like a tenure track position is almost impossible. Mm. <laughs> um, that's just kind of how it works, With but uh, it, it was fine. So that's what brought me there because – Chinese medicine is a, is a full system of medicine.
0: Yeah.
3: Um, you can, you, like I said, in, in Florida, you're an acupuncture physician. Um, you can be a general practitioner here in California. It's designed, it's a holistic form of medicine. So it was better than just becoming a registered dietitian. Right. Right. Um, and you can couch, I mean, you, you, you have to be careful where and how you do this legally speaking, but you can, I can cou- if I wanted to, I could, if I saw someone in person back in Florida and my, my license were active, I could, uh, um, see them and couch my dietary recommendations for them as a as a bodybuilder let's say dieting down or what have you in the context of chinese medicine and just the same way that a physician could physician could legally tell anybody to eat anything although western allopathic physicians don't know necessarily know medicine or uh, nutrition all that well um, and dieticians can do that chiropractors can do that naturopaths can do that osteopaths can do that yeah and acupuncturists can do that but it's more than that it's you're, you're a massage therapist i'm a body worker too yeah Um, And you've got the herbs, which is a whole system of medicine and the acupuncture, which is phenomenal for pain. And um, the thing that's really kind of cool about a lot of acupuncture, you can go, this can be pushed too far. You guys are probably familiar with um, what can happen with some chiropractors. Some chiropractors are phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And then some chiropractors are kind of wackadoodle. They can go like way off the mm-hmm. off the beaten path and start doing all sorts of bizarre things. Um, Chinese medicine practitioners, acupuncturists will do the same thing too. So they can focus on, let's say, um, allergy elimination. There's a woman actually down in California who came up with an allergy elimination technique that works phenomenally well. And I have a bizarre story. I actually saw that happen once. It's, it's a totally woo-woo type of thing. So one of the things that I learned a long while ago is when I was in my master's degree in, in uh, Texas, I took a, a class from a woman named Juanine Spiriduso, who's just brilliant. She was a, a really, um, she was a woman in academia. She was probably in her 60s at the time. And that was very rare to become a tenured professor in academia as a woman when she went through means she's just tough as nails. And so you would think she's going to be just straight laced, you know, show me the evidence, give me the proof, show me the data. Otherwise, it's totally bunk. And she taught this, taught this research methods class. And one of the big sections, and this is actually in my book, um, lying there on the coffee table in front of us, is there are various ways of knowing things. And you can know it through your intuition. You can know it because you read the research. I mean, sometimes the research can be fabricated, too. You can know it because you've seen it in the trenches in the gym. You can know it because your mom told you. Um, you can know because you had a dream and you can weigh those things in different ways. So when I went into Chinese medicine, (laughs) it was really funny. I was literally, I was an assistant professor in a tenure track program there at Cal Poly Pomona. And I'm taking these Chinese medicine classes and I'm constantly, continuously having to suspend my disbelief Hmm. because I'm I'm like, where's the evidence for this? Show me, show me, show me, show me, show me. And the evidence is in thousands of years of practitioners figuring this stuff out. And the whole paradigm the way I sort of um, couch it with people is that the paradigm of Chinese medicine is sort of like Newtonian physics, the laws of Newtonian physics, where you can, if you want to know how far a projectile is going to go, or you just plug in the velocity and the mass and those sorts of things, you can you can figure out where a rocket's going to go. You, know, you can launch a man into space using Newtonian physics. Those laws apply. But... Physicists will say, well, quantum mechanics gives us a deeper, more true understanding of what's really going on. Newtonian physics really doesn't doesn't give us the penultimate explanatory um, view of the world from a physics standpoint. Well, Chinese medicine is just a paradigm, hmm. like the idea of chi and yin and yang and... Blood is a vital substance, all these mm-hmm. sorts of things. That, it's not that you can necessarily measure those mm-hmm. in some way, shape, or form, per se. It also doesn't it, discredit them either, it, right? It just means that the paradigm is a way of looking at things. Exactly. It doesn't discredit them. So as long as you stick with the paradigm and apply it and use it, it has usefulness in the real world, just like Newtonian physics does. Now, do you remember the the first you
1: know paradigm-shattering moment that you had being a guy that came from Western medicine, and now also, and you're doing all of a sudden you're learning all this Eastern medicine – was there the first, like, oh, shit, maybe
3: everything that I was taught before wasn't all? Oh, that's, I, there's there's various moments. There was once, um I, I had actually, what sort of brought me in that direction in part was I was living in L.A., the pollution's horrible. I was just, I was coughing and hacking. I wasn't doing well with the pollution. So I went and saw an acupuncturist, and that wasn't so helpful, but it clued me into the idea of Chinese medicine. I read up about it. I looked at the... Um, the NIH uh, position stand, those sorts of things. And one day I was really, really sick. I would I think I'd eaten something. I was super, super nauseated and literally, and I have an iron gut. I don't, I've only thrown up from training maybe three or four times over the course of the years. And I've done some pretty horrendous training. And literally I drove down to get an acupuncture treatment, just sort of as an exploratory type of thing at the uh, South Baylo university. And, in and um, there in LA and, I felt awful. I got out of my car and I went over and threw up in the bushes and I walked in and I sat down. It was just a student there. And uh, he's like, how are you feeling? I feel awful. I feel absolutely terrible. He's like, what's wrong? It's like, he's like, I'm I'm nauseated. He's like, well, let's fix that for you. He laid down and he, and he put needles in what's called pericardium six. It's the, uh, the point here where they put those seasickness bands. Right, right, right. Yeah. And so I'm lying there. It's just feeling horrible. And, about five seconds later, he says, "How you feeling now?" I'm like, "All right, that was magic. What the hell did you just do? It went away instantaneously." Wow. I'm like, oh, "So how how the, like where's where's yeah, the explain mirror, this like, to explain me? Explain this yeah. one. Like what the hell's going on here?" So that was just that's just an empirical point. It's been found empirically for nausea. As far as I know, no one has traced some sort of nervous pathway, you know, that, that leads down to the gut, Mm. to the enteric nervous system or up to the brain, the areas that would be activated when someone has nausea, but. But there's something there, and I've seen that multiple times. That's why people use that as a seasickness um, treatment. Literally, you can buy those bands, and it does help many, many people.
2: And they work. The, they do. What you said that I really like is you, how you compare Newtonian physics to quantum physics, and there is no unified theory right. with physics. They try to get them to work together, but they don't. it doesn't make sense, because at the very small, things operate differently in the very large. And when it comes to health, I think that's a, that's a great comparison because there are— I mean, Chinese medicine has existed for thousands of years and Mm -hmm. does have that kind of evidence supporting it. My question to you is, what have you taken from Chinese medicine and applied? Because Chinese medicine is very much about balance, Mm -hmm. very much about balancing energy systems in the body. You know, um, if you have too much yang energy, they'll try and balance it with some yin. Bodybuilding is a very yang sport. It's Mm -hmm. very testosterone. It's very aggressive. Mm -hmm. Lots of stimulants. Um, and that probably causes people a lot of problems without balancing. Were you able to take some of your knowledge from Chinese medicine and help even the extreme bodybuilders? I'm
3: looking at health almost continuously with everyone. <clears throat> I've got uh, that. That was that was perspective as an acupuncturist. As you're you're trying to make someone as healthy as possible. Whereas you're right, competitive bodybuilding is not about health. No, it's about it's about basically trying to hack whatever adaptations you can from your body and in the most extreme way possible. Um, come hell or high water. And sometimes it is hell and high water for people that push. So uh, interestingly enough, there's next week sometime we're going to record on my podcast with a, a former client of mine who came to me and he he wanted to get his pro card you know, very typical type of thing. And I always ask goals. That's the first section of my book is, what are your goals? Like long, big time, bodybuilding goals, life goals, everything, where does it all fit? Where, where, is this, where does this bodybuilding thing balance with the rest of what you wanna do with your life? And he had just gotten engaged or married at that time and he wanted to have kids. And I said, okay, um, and he lives in the UK. So steroid use is totally legal. Mm. It's not really frowned upon socially in the way it is in the States and that was going to be a no-go. So we had to, and we'll probably go into this on the podcast, but I had to go in and kind of do a detailed medical history with him as best as possible to figure out. So is it going to matter like five years from now? I sometimes use the rules of five, like will it matter in five minutes, will it matter in five weeks, five months, five years, five decades. What? How do we rank things in terms of importance? And five years from now, whether you got a pro, pro card may or may not matter, but five years from now or 15 or 20 years from now, whether he has a child and he has a family with the woman that he loves is going to matter a whole heck of a lot more. So that's what we did. We spent basically a year um, doing a PCT type of thing. We use the, uh, the, um, program for wellness restoration, power PCT. Okay, and Michael PCT Scali. is a post cycle therapy. Post cycle therapy, yeah. Michael so, Scally came up with that one.
2: Pharmaceuticals, or did you use herbs and medicine? No, medicine or both.
3: I, I I chose. I got. I chose the best way I know, knew. And there's a little bit of research showing this uh, in like HIV patients that have been have used steroids for increasing red blood cell count mm-hmm. and holding on a muscle mass that um, that you can you can restore endogenous testosterone with this, um, this protocol using HCG and Robitase inhibitor and Clomid. Mm. And so we had to run him through that a few times and he went from like basically a nil, uh, sperm count to having a baby
2: girl. Wow. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It's phenomenal. So like
3: those, those are the types of things that, um, I, I will lose clients very often. Um, because I, I, if if they're so single-mindedly focused in a way um, that uh, at least they won't tell me what their concerns are about their long-term health, they might just back away. Um, I've had clients before. Uh, I'll ask questions because, for instance, the GI health—it's central to Chinese medicine. I think it's central to bodybuilding too. We talked about Jordan Peters before and how much food he could put down—ten
2: thousand calories a day. You said he was, uh, he, at that one point he
3: made up to ten grand a day. Yeah, when he was really really putting it on and. Getting that food in was essential for the growth that he had to had to um, that he got during that period of time when we were working together. So, I'll ask people Chinese medicine. You ask a dozen questions about their poop, <laughs> about their about the, do they have regurgage? Do they have bloating? It tells you about all the the organs, quote unquote, the energetic organs in Chinese medicine. Literally, the like there's a in a lot of books, the basic Chinese medical books. There'll be a whole chapter chest on the poop. Is mm-hmm. it is it is it long and thin? Is it round? Is it diarrhea? Does it have blood in it, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I'll ask questions about bowel movement and poop. And I've had clients it's like, why are you asking me this? I'm like, this is important. Like if you if literally if you got blood and mucus in your stool on a regular basis, we've got bigger issues than whether or not, you know, you're going to get first or third in your next bodybuilding show, at least the way I look at it so it's it may be somewhat I guess you could say in a way arrogant for me to think that I would know what's best for someone, but I'm just trying to do do what i the best mm-hmm. I possibly can to help as many people as mm-hmm. possible. So I always step back from that medical practitioner standpoint and try to help in that way
2: excellent now, yeah. someone like yourself with your kind of education and intelligence, are you ever and you coming from the bodybuilding space, which is also for decades has been very bro sciencey. Lots yeah, of right. hearsay. This is what we do. Why? Because that's just the way we do it. Are you ever shocked at old, how sometimes the old wisdom turns out to be true where you prove it with science? You ever shocked by any of that? Um, Not,
3: not, not so much to be honest. The thing that's, here's, here's the discussion that I have so often. And I really find it fascinating because I, I ride the fence like that is that almost all of the bro sciencey things that have proven themselves to be true over the years. If you dig and dig and dig and dig and dig, which is what I, something I love to do. You can find at least some semblance of an explanation in the Western science. You're not going to get it just by reading titles of of papers or just skimming through abstracts. But if you dig deep in, you can, you can figure out why these things might or might not work. Mm. Um, One thing we're going to talk about maybe is training. and, And I've got a, this is a. This would launch us into probably a, about a ten minute explanation. If you guys want to go there, oh, I love but, it. Okay, yeah, yeah. so the bro split. Yeah, where, where guys will train like once once a week, and that's if you look at the biggest bodybuilders, the biggest pros, most of them train that way. Mm-hmm. So, stepping back. There's, there has been research done looking at extreme responders, people who just basically grow by driving past the gym. They mm-hmm. just grow no matter what. <laughs> and the moderate responders. Then there are people with non-responders mm-hmm. when it comes to muscle growth. Same yeah, thing. most
2: people. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people, relatively <laughs> yes. speaking. There's
3: some that are literally non-responders. Sure, the hard, get, hard gainers. They'll get nothing. Right. They'll train for 8 or 12 weeks. And you see, I, I, I love these studies. I have a, a talk that I've actually given with John Meadows, so I know you had on yeah. He was instrumental in getting me over here today. Um, uh, why you don't look like a pro. And I go through biological inter-individuality in various various ways. And there are studies where they have the individual subject plots of muscle growth, like increasing cross-sectional area with an Mm -hmm. MRI. And there there are people that are literally, they're like below the zero line. Like just some of that's just measurement error, but they literally got nothing. They trained their butts off in a lab setting, got yelled at by these guys, come on, push, 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 push. And they get no growth. And then there are some people who just grow like weeds. And one of the things, there's several things that sort of fit in there, but one of the things that's really important for muscle growth, and it's the way it normally would occur, is an increase in satellite cells, mm-hmm. which you guys have probably talked about here several yeah. times. Mm-hmm. So you need to have more satellite cells in the in the muscle cell. They each have what's called a myonuclear domain in order to sort of government the govern the protein synthesis. And all the ultrastructural maintenance that goes on. Now in if, if you cell don't mind ex-
2: explaining what a satellite cell is in the muscle, it's sure. like a stem cell, right? Or, or it's,
3: it's like a muscle-specific stem cell. Okay. So it's not a contractile cell. It's not expressing contractile proteins. Okay. It's not adding to force. It's not connected to the um, connective tissue, um, the epimysium or perimysium that winds through the muscle. So it's it's doing nothing but kind of hanging out. And gathering information. There's some really cool stuff on what satellite cells can do. Oh, very cool. Um, there's one there was one study where they took the sat they took the satellite cells out of endurance athletes and cultures the cultured those in a petri dish and looked at insulin sensitivity in these satellite cells that had never undergone any of the endurance action activity of those endurance trained individuals. It could have been some genetic um, things that are going on here. These people that have uh, endurance or endurance trained have genetic advantages. That's why they're doing endurance training. But when they cultured those satellite cells that had never done any activity, they had greater insulin sensitivity than satellite cells from sedentary people. Mm. That's exactly what you see in skeletal muscle that had been active. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: But these satellite cells never had been. That's probably an epigenic. Phenomenon. Wow. Yeah. So they're they're picking up on the environment. So when muscles are damaged or when they're growing, the satellite cells will proliferate. They'll make a copy of themselves. And kind of the standard way you'd look at it is they might make a copy. So there's two of them, and one of those will make its way into the muscle cell and set up shop on the periphery of the muscle cell. So you can have all the protein synthesis and take care of all the uh, interaction with mitochondrial proteins, etc. I always liken it to um, if you're building a larger city, you need more post offices. Mm. So as the city enlarges, you're going to be able to transfer all the proteins around and, and basically keep organizational structure in the larger city. You need more post offices. Mm. And those things stick around. That's one of the uh, mechanisms of muscle memory. So,
2: so like in other words, build a bunch of muscle. You get more satellite cells. Muscle shrinks. Satellite cells stick around. They do. And that's probably why muscles grow back. Twice as fast the second time Mm -hmm. around.
3: That's one of the mechanisms. That's the theories, right? Epigenetics Mm -hmm. is the the other one where Mm -hmm. some of those genes become probably demethylated or otherwise um, set up so they're more easily, they more easily express themselves Mm -hmm. under the stimulus of training. Mm -hmm. So individuals who are the extreme responders, when they start out, they tend to have more satellite cells. They have Mm -hmm. a higher satellite cell density. And they also get a greater... Release of mechano growth factor. It's an IGF-1 splice variant kind of IGF-1 that triggers all that satellite cell activity. Mm. So they start off with more satellite cells, and their satellite cells are more re- get a better oomph to do their job to set up shop, so the muscle cells can get bigger. And the people who are non responders, they don't they don't have those advantages. And as best I can find, I'm waiting for someone to explore this, but as best I can find that. That satellite cell activity that's triggered by the mechano growth factor, myogenin is another protein that's expressed in those satellite cells when they're doing their business. It lasts maybe five or six days, just about a week. Mm-hmm. So if you're someone who's a responder who gets a good release of mechano growth factor to turn all that satellite cell activity, you, that, that action, that activity is happening just about for about close to a week. So you're getting all the, you train once and then you've got all those things set in motion for mm-hmm. about a week. You come back and train again. Now, if you're someone who's got a piddly response as far as turning on those satellite cells, then maybe you get a little bit of mechanogrowth growth factor. Maybe you get a little bit of response, but not quite enough to really turn on the satellite cell activity as much as you'd like to. Someone like that might need to provide another stimulus.
2: More frequent training. More frequent training. Yeah. And, is- and, and what I found as a personal trainer, who I, you know, I trained average people. I didn't train very many bodybuilders. It was just everyday people. Most people responded really well to training their whole body a few days a week. And then the few people that I did work with who were hyper responders once a week. And yeah. then, Now, what about muscle right. protein synthesis and how they measure that? And they find that it spikes and, and kind of drops after about 48, 72 hours. Is that... That's a different... You know, mechanism that we're measuring. Yeah,
3: that's that's part of it. That's part of what's going on. Is what's interesting is that 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 is turned on. It, can, it it's actually blunted the more trained you get, mm-hmm. and it's shortened as well mm-hmm. from the data we have. So um, that suggests if you're just looking at those numbers, you could train every other day, mm-hmm. possibly. That's a, it's a it's a standard, basically uh, um, example of a training adaptation. Mm. Um, When you initially train and the stimulus is new and fresh, you will get this major response. And then the next time you train or the more trained you become, the less of a perturbation in the equilibrium of the cell that becomes. So the protein synthesis isn't turned on as much. The muscle protein breakdown isn't turned on as much. You don't get as sore, all those sorts of things. So you have to push harder. In order to elicit further adaptations, and the muscle protein synthesis is obviously um, very important for that.
2: Now, I have a question for you, so because that suggests that you know the variables, adjusting variables in your training, will help maintain that that protein synthesis signal, right? Not doing the mm-hmm. same thing over and over, right? But at the same time, I've seen people take that so far to where they change the workout so often right. that they don't get enough uh, they don't get enough of that skill and that strength of focusing on certain, like for example, a barbell squat. You know, uh, it, it might take you months to get good enough at it to be able to really maximize the benefit of it. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, we're hearing that you need to switch things up all the time. Where is that? Where's that happy medium? Or how do you how do you judge that?
3: Yeah. So so there's there's two different competing. I actually I did a talk with John this year at the Arnold Classic, and I kind of covered this one. Um, there's so many different p- lines of research that suggest both of those things. Daily undulating periodization is the idea that you'd use like a a low rep range a moderate rest range and a higher rep range on different days of the week. Mm -hmm. So all those different rep ranges are all good stimuli for muscle growth. They're all going to turn hypertrophy. So you want to use all of them in a way so that you don't get uh, refractory to the same stimulus over and over and over again, always training heavy. But the bottom line is, at least when it comes to strength, as best of I believe, and this is this is one of those things that's in the research, this is why I did this talk, is there are several studies where they've looked at the increase in strength and the increase in muscle size, fiber size, or lean body mass. And those things correlate really, really well. Mm-hmm. Probably the best study that I, and I know of was done with rugby players. And you, funny you mentioned squats because they followed them for two years. And the correlation increase in squat one rep max, and it's not that you necessarily have to do a one rep max, just doing one rep max is probably not the best way to trigger muscle growth. Powerlifters aren't necessarily always the biggest guys, the bodybuilders are. Right. But that increase in one rep max in the squat correlated, I think the correlation was like 0.88. Wow. Over two years with increase in lean body mass. Yeah, direct. It's that covers about eighty percent of the variance yeah. in, in lean body mass. So you can imagine that. Imagine someone who took their squat from, you know, three hundred to four fifty, and someone who took their squat from two sixty to two eighty five. Yeah,
2: you're gonna see more growth than the guy that did the.
3: Yeah, it's pretty simple, and that's 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 kind of common sense. It's bro science. The biggest guys are generally the strongest guys. So it's not a perfect one to one, but if you double your strength and all your main core lifts that's going to that's gonna show up in some way, shape, or form. Yep, some yep. of that's neurological. Hopefully, as much of it as, as possible is muscular. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the part of, of that, which I think you were kind of uh, hinting at, is that you can't just get really, really strong at lifts by just practicing those. Mm-hmm. That's what powerlifters and Olympic lifters mm-hmm. are trying to do. So that's not what you're necessarily wanting to do, is just elicit all those neural adaptations. Mm-hmm. You want to get stronger, um, on as, perhaps on as many lifts as you possibly can. And in many rep ranges as you possibly can. What I would love, I'm surprised. I need to. I want to contact these researchers and see if, if they they have to have these data because. I, but I haven't seen them published. Is we also know that the the low load training, like 30 percent of a one rep max, mm-hmm. you know, 30 rep sets, which are brutal. Absolutely, mm-hmm. atrociously brutal.
2: Yeah, if they're taking a failure, don't they stimulate growth like almost anything else? On the
3: short term, yeah, you get the same increase in muscle size. Brad Schoenfeld's done one of those. Wernbaum's Bombs done one of those studies. Mm-hmm. Um, Stu Phillips has done one of those studies. I would love to see the correlation between increase in weight used for those low load, um, low load training. Oh, I see.
2: So stronger and, in the thirty rep range.
3: Yes, because we know stronger in one rep max, one rep max. Um, predicts muscle growth. Mm -hmm. But I haven't, so that would basically, that would answer the question, which I'm I'm fairly certain is gonna be answered with a yes, is that increasing, um, the adapting to the training stimulus that turns on muscle hypertrophy is gonna mean a hypertrophic adaptation. Mm. So whether it's lower reps, higher weight, or higher reps, um, lower weight, the more you adapt, the more you push yourself, Mm. the more you see the logbook Mm-hmm. And things move forward in the gym. The more muscle growth you're going to get.
2: In, in my experience, uh, the, the the training that you're not doing is the one that typically will give you the best. Yes. You know, like if, I, if you always train that one rep max range Absolutely. and then you go to the 30 rep, you just see crazy, crazy progress. Yeah. And then I'll flip. One of my favorite things to do, especially with female clients, because they never train in the heavy rep range, mm-hmm. they, at least not the average female client, right. is they'd take them through a strength cycle and blow their mind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden their butt would lift and their hamstrings would develop and right. they'd get great arms and all that stuff. Along these lines, uh, the that neural adaptation that we talk about with strength that plays such a big role in maximal strength. So mm-hmm. it's not necessarily that your muscles got bigger. It's that the juice going to the muscles, right. that, that right. amp signal is stronger and you have a more coordinated, I guess, uh, lift. How big of a role does that also play in muscle building? Because if you have a better connection and signal, shouldn't that activate more muscle fibers or doesn't that also contribute to more, more muscle growth as well?
3: So the way I see things, a bodybuilding is, is an attempt to hack the biology of your muscular system in particular in order to create a muscular callus. You mm. you really don't care how much stronger you get. In fact, it's it's better for your overall joint health probably to not be lifting as <laughs> yeah. much heavy stuff as you possibly can. You yeah, yeah. I mean guys who've like done like, heavy squats for like, years, you know, Ronnie Coleman, good example. Like, it's like, them, like Ronnie Coleman versus Dexter Jackson. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So there are so many things that go into those nervous system adaptations. The nervous system um, is is uniquely set up to uh, be able to activate the muscle as it adapts to a, a stimulus like weight training in a way that. Is, is, can just happen with simple neural reorganization, simple neurological strategies. So there are things like simply being, a- being able to activate more motor units than you could before. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a hard thing to test. That research literature is kind of, kind of wonky. It's kind of funny, to be honest. Um, but in the brain, for instance, when you're doing a concentric versus an eccentric contraction, there are different areas of the motor cortex that are activated, even for the same muscle group. Mm. And it's a weird thing. Literally, it's, I always say it's an unnatural act to lift weights because you're picking something up and you're putting it right back down and doing
2: it again, you're picking it up and putting it down. <laughs> it,
3: like, what is wrong with you? Where move it somewhere? Do something with it. Why do you just keep on obsessively picking up and put it down? Well, you're trying to create a callus. It's like mm. it's like rubbing sandpaper on your hand. Mm. You're trying to make a callus there. Mm -hmm. It's like, if you saw people doing that, imagine gyms, you know, in some bizarre alternative universe where people are just trying to make their, their skin really calloused and they just, they just go in and they just rub sandpaper all over (laughs) their bodies. That's kind of what we're doing with with weight training. Mm -hmm. We're trying to make our muscles bigger. There's obviously evolutionary biological reasons Mm -hmm. for that. It's a display of fitness. So there's, there's things like, there's a phenomenon like called muscle wisdom. Whereby the muscular system will adjust the firing rate of those motor neurons that go to motor units as they fatigue, because fatigued mo- muscle fibers are slower. So you could go on and on. There's all sorts of neurological adaptation. Yes,
2: they did it. They did a. Uh, I can't remember the name of the show, but they were testing um, high-level athletes, and they had Randy Couture mm. on there. And the test was, they had to get a headlock on this device that measured like the pressure and then they had all these sensors all over their body to see how their body was reacting and they had him compared to other strong athletes but of course he's a grappler and they're measuring how his muscles are taking turns firing but because he's been doing this for so long his body had become so efficient he was was able to apply the same pressure for longer than everybody not because he was stronger but because of the efficiency of how his body that muscle wisdom in, in, in effect what you're talking about how the body was able to fire certain muscles and activate some harder than others, but maintain the same level of pressure. Yeah,
3: with, within a given muscle, there's a rotation among motor units. So they'll do these studies where they can isolate. Within the same muscle? Within the same muscle. Oh, a lot wow. of them are like in the hand. It's hard to study these in larger muscles, but they'll, they'll be able to isolate different motor units. So the one nerve that goes to a number of fibers. And oh, wow. just when someone's turning on, like they're doing some sort of isometric hold, they'll see those motor units come on and come off. Hmm. so like when i when I teach this and I teach to my classes, or when i 'm doing a presentation i 'd say so this half of the room um, you 're going to be involved initially when we start start with this effort because it's it 's light there 's no fatigue going on and the the five of you on this side of the room, maybe three of you are what's needed initially, and then one of you will drop off, the other will take up the slack for them. And the other person will then drop off and someone else will take up the slack for them. So you'll kind of rotate the load amongst yourselves. And as the fatigue occurs, then we'll start to call upon those higher threshold motor units. And the nervous system just knowing, knows this. The spinal cord figures out what fatigue is going on and how to do this. And it'll start rotating amongst those motor units. So instead of using just five of the mm-hmm. low threshold, mm-hmm. it'll start calling upon seven, eight, and finally maybe all 10. But some of them will be dropping in and some will be dropping out. It's rotating the load to reduce the fatigue, If you just, like electrical stimulation does, if you just turn on the motor units at a given firing rate, the fatigue is great. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a great way to stimulate muscle growth because it's kind of a bizarre activation pattern. But but the nervous system knows how to do that. So it'll rotate amongst, and then when they start to fatigue, it'll adjust the firing rate down as Mm -hmm. well. um, Because... There's no point in centering firing rate to muscle that's that's now fatigued and slower. All that does is waste energy in the neurons. And then you have a potential for neural, neural fatigue. Mm. So that's the wisdom phenomenon. And then there's what you were sort of getting, I think, with the Randy Couture study, yeah. is that different muscles will be getting involved. Right. I had a guy a long time ago. Uh, he was an older gentleman who had he had owned a construction company. He's a general contractor and he was training with his son. He had retired. He wanted to just kind of do something, you know, keep himself active. And we were doing, you know, back and bicep training one day and I'd wanted to do a a concentration curl with him. And no one could see this, of course, on the radio, but um, I had him, you know, with his elbow braced against his inner knee. And I just want pure elbow flexion, no, nothing at all. Just that, just robotic, pure elbow flexure, Just trying to do elbow elbow flexors. He was he could not help himself but pull his shoulder into it. Mm-hmm. He was basically using his shoulder to leverage kind of an isometric contraction mm-hmm. so he could move move the weight up. And I literally I couldn't even hold his shoulder in place. Mm-hmm. And he had learned that because he'd been picking up heavy stuff for fifty years of his life. That's required Hard
1: it. That's uh, a yeah.
2: recruitment pattern. Yeah, yeah where
3: you talk about that all the time, which it totally reminds me of that.
1: Why that's so important to establish the. Pre- proper biomechanics, and, and really just hone in on those, uh, the, those main sort of movement patterns so that way, you,
3: you, you know, that's what your go-to is when you get that fatigue setting in, right? Well, that's what you want as a power lifter mm-hmm. or an Olympic lifter. You want to use as much muscle as you possibly can, engage as much muscle mass to perform the, from the task. Bodybuilding is just the opposite of that. You want to have the "quote unquote" mind muscle connection, where if that if he's trying to train his biceps like that, that's no longer a concentration curl. Mm-hmm. That's just sort of like some sort of an he's just elbow. moving the weight. He's just moving the weight around, right. it. and he's 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 basically take, removing the load as much as possible because that's how he had been wired to do things mm. from the biceps. So
2: and and this is why I think because you get good at whatever you train, right? right. So if you train like a bodybuilder, you start to become good at that. You get very good at isolating and activating. And maximizing, uh, you know, muscle growth through the through these types of patterns. If you're a strength athlete, you maximize patterns to lift maximum weight. Mm-hmm. This is why I think many times uh, bodybuilding, just pure bodybuilding, has gotten a bad rap in sports because it trains your body to work in a way that's beneficial for growth, but not necessarily beneficial for total function or performance. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, the, the, that, that harp comes back to specificity of training. Yes. Mm-hmm. So you want to increase the muscle mass in the gym, but make sure you're training the nervous system to use that muscle mass on the field or on the court or wherever it is exactly. you can apply it as an athlete.
2: Exactly. So I have a question for you. Here's a here's a, a, a little bro myth that I've okay. witnessed, I've felt, I have no explanation for, I have my theories, but I want to see if you know any any science to support this. Okay. For a long time now, and the first time I ever heard about this was uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's Encyclopedia of Bodybuilding, how they would do a heavy cycle of strength training, and it would produce denser, harder, more granite-looking muscle than the traditional bodybuilding-type training. Now, I've seen that in myself. When I train heavy, my muscles seem to feel hard. It's a different feel to my body, mm-hmm. and I've noticed this in, in, in people I've trained. Is that total bro science, or do you think there's something to explain it? Have you witnessed it yourself?
3: So that's where people would, if they, if they want to get really bro science-y, mm. and I just, I just saw someone make mention of this in an article that I need to read, but I've, I addressed this. Maybe in this book I address it, and I have a fortitude training system, and I address it in that book as well. People will then sort of invoke the idea of sarcoplasmic yeah. versus myofibular hypertrophy. Sure. And that there's that is not something you can you can put those things into Google Scholar, um, go to PubMed. You're, you don't find that those two types of muscle size increases mm-hmm. um, differentiated in any way, shape, or form. But what we do know is that a certain percentage of the muscle cell is composed of mitochondria, and that can change. It's not a lot; it's it's maybe five percent, but it might be three percent in type two muscle fibers and five percent in others, and then glycogen levels can matter a good bit mm. um, and glycogen carries water with it sure so that potentially could create this this sort of differential look that mm. you're talking about where you've got a muscle cell that's has a little more glycogen in it Um, And it brings water with it. People will talk about the number of like 2.7 grams of water, gram of glycogen. That's actually from a study with rats in the liver. It's glycogen levels (laughs) in the liver of
2: rats. You can't really translate that. No. (laughs) Uh,
3: There was a guy named Mike Sherman at Ohio State who who looked into this, and it's all over the place in terms of how much – water you get with a given amount of glycogen. The glycogen is stored as a glycogen, glycogenin complex with protein. There's an osmotic effect, but it seems to vary. Mm. Um, How much potassium is in your system can make a difference there. You actually won't glycogen load if you're devoid of potassium, if you're Mm. potassium deficient. Potassium is one of the main intracellular electrolytes. So there's that. And there's also um, intramuscular triglycerides stored in the cells. So you take someone who's doing like a high volume bro type of split and you, and you're reducing glycogen levels and actually you use muscle triglyceride pretty substantially. Mm. Some Scandinavian researchers have looked in that. It actually can be dro- dropped a good bit. And that varies. It's all over the place from the data I've seen as to mm. how much f- fat is in inside the cells, the skeletal muscle cells. So... In doing that, when you have a stimulus that reduces the intracellular fu- fuel stores, the adaptation is to store more, more of those, right. so you're ready for the next, you know, thirty or forty set workout that you're going to do. So, you and, get
2: more of that pump, more of that fluid, whatever.
3: Yeah, well, you get more of those, more of those, uh, more of the, the fuel stored in there yeah. and the water. Yeah, so, the
2: non muscle fiber structures and all that. Exactly.
3: The mm. stuff in the quote unquote sarcoplasm. Right, right. So, there's a little bit of data that sort of would suggest there's some variability there, but I haven't seen anyone, I would love to see someone study that. You can look at. Um,
2: oh, so would I. It's so subjective, though. How would they test that? Like, <laughs> my, muscle my,
3: myofibular packing density okay. is what they would do. Okay. They, so, they look. At um, do a cross section of the muscle, and you can look at the myofibrils and see how densely they're packed in the skull. So if you have two cells that are exactly the same size, and one has 90 myofibrils, these numbers Mm -hmm. aren't at all accurate, and the other one has 100, the one with 90 has a lower myofibular Mm -hmm. packing density. So it's going to have more sarcoplasmic volume Mm -hmm. relative to the myofibular volume. Interesting. Yeah.
2: Now, what about muscle hyperplasia? When I first got my my certification uh, years ago, 20-something years ago, that was it. Didn't happen. They said, "Oh, it doesn't happen in humans. We've only seen it in animals." Now, some studies are showing that no, it, it might happen in humans. Um, it might take a long time to happen. Now, hyperplasia is where basically you you get more muscle fibers. Not just that your muscle fibers grow, but that you actually add more muscle fibers to your muscle. What right. does the current research say about that?
3: It, it, it's it's. I would say it's it's highly likely in in in, in uh, well trained bodybuilders, and they've actually there's actually de- the strongest piece of evidence to that effect comes from data that's now decades years decades old, where they've looked at the fibers of guys who are doing the bro split, high volume type of thing, and they have large muscles, fifty hundred percent larger than untrained people, but their fibers are the same size, and they have lots of type one fibers, uh. so. Unless they started off Which is with just ridiculous, more sm- yeah. small, fi- really itty bitty small fibers, and they spent decades training to make them average size. Then something's probably going on there, mm-hmm. and and there's a, a study that Jose Antonio has written some some nice work. That's on what this. I've read. Yes. Yeah, he's he's the man when it comes to he he worked with a, a guy um, named Gagne mm. um, in Texas who did like the weighted quail studies. That's where they the hang one with the where they, Yeah, they hang the weight yeah. on their on
2: their wing or whatever in a stretch position. And yep.
3: Like, it's kind of like the, the equivalent in a human would be imagine literally a 200 pound guy and he takes like a 40 pound dumbbell, you strap it to his hand and he has to carry it around all day long, mm-hmm. and it's pulling. On his trap, mm-hmm. and so he's constantly got. You imagine that trap would grow, mm-hmm. and the greatest increase in muscle size was in a study that that uh, that they did, um, and they did a progressive overload weighted stretch and intermittently with these quail. So it was something like Hitman exact protocol, but they start off with maybe twenty percent of the animal's weight. So it'd be like a forty pound dumbbell, and they had them uh, put them under stretch for a couple of days, and they gave them a day off. They wanted to actually have some recovery there. Mm -hmm. And then they, they bumped up the load to like 20 or 30%. And they gave a couple of days, gave a day off, did it for like a month. And the interesting thing is that over the course of that month, the muscle kept on getting larger, kept on growing Mm -hmm. And the fibers kept on getting bigger for about the first two-thirds or so or three-quarters of the study. So they had some animals they sacrificed early on and some animals they let go of the entire month. So they could kind of track what's going on with the whole muscle size, mm-hmm. the muscle wet weight, and the fiber size. And in the last third or quarter of the study, the fibers actually started getting smaller. Hmm. That's suggestive of, of hyper, hyperplasia. The, hyperplasia, yeah. And, and that's been known to happen. They can count the fibers. That model of muscle growth produces hyperplasia. There's no doubt about that.
2: Wow. Yeah. yeah so, Because so the, the, my belief would be that it just takes a long time. Like you got to train for a long time, high intensity for a long time. Right. That's where you start to get that. Because I noticed as I get older, it's easy to keep muscle. Yeah. It wasn't when I was first building muscle, it was hard. Now, I mean, it's not hard for me to keep the muscle that I've built. Right. Um, and and this leads me to another question. We, you know, with uh, we, you know, the sport of bodybuilding, of course, uh, androgen use, uh, anabolic steroid use, and it gets you to a certain size. Then you go off. You lose the muscle because now you're off. But if you stay on these, these anabolics for long enough and train long enough and increase the amount of, n- of satellite cells and potentially increase hyperplasia, could that produce permanent muscle growth? In other words, could people mm. do cycles of anabolics – and go off, but then be essentially better off than they were before in terms of muscle size or or potential for muscle size?
3: So you can look at this uh, different ways of knowing. Um, You can look at some of the pros, like some of the best pros who've come off. Um... You'll see pictures like people love to post this on social media because they want it with the hashtag all drugs yeah, sort of thing. Yeah. And you'll see these pros who've shrunken back down. They've stopped training. They stopped eating the way they used to. They just don't they care. They stopped everything. Yeah, everything. They pro- may have gotten de- gotten depressed. They, and they don't retain size. They look very normal or even mm-hmm. kind of small. Some of them have gotten sick too, so it's hard to know exactly. It's not, it's not a perfect experimental model. But there are some data in animals showing, of course, that satellite cells get turned on with anabolic steroids. And you get these epigenetic changes, which, which suggests that for any stimulus that you'd have, the muscle would be more responsive in a way that it wouldn't have been had it not been previously exposed to mm-hmm. the anabolic steroids. So there's something there that, pro- that gives you probably an advantage. So being like truly natural versus being clean, so previous steroid user mm-hmm. who's now, you know, back to just maybe a TRT or, or nothing, that clean person probably has an advantage in having had so much muscle mass previously because they could, hyperplasia could be one, of, one, one aspect of that, more satellite cells in those muscles so they can grow more easily, the epigenetic changes, all those sorts of things.
2: Oh, well, I mean, I, I, I know I have family members who, blue collar workers who, and they, they weren't anabolic steroid users, but uh you know people who swung hammers or yes. i have mail carriers and they're retired they're in their 70s now but there's the the muscles that they use so much you know for 30 40 years to work still developed i have an uncle who's 70 something years old massive forearms yes. the dude doesn't do anything with his hands he hasn't done anything with his hands for 20 years right but the muscles haven't left his body because yeah. of that permanent whatever you want to call it, muscle mm-hmm. you know hyperplasia or whatever
3: yeah and, so, and some of that can be too is is they've they've developed that pattern of use with the hand so just in day-to-day they've they have a lot of muscle mass available for doing things in the forearm because they had to have that because of what they were doing mm-hmm. occupationally or what have you and then they go and they use that. they develop sort of a neurological preference for using that muscle they once had. And that helps them hold on mm. to that muscle mass in those places.
2: Interesting. Yeah. And it makes, so here's another good question for you. You know, years, maybe six or seven years ago now, um, I came up with a concept called trigger sessions. I didn't invent it. I don't think, I know other people have talked about uh, similar things in the past, but for me it was new. And what I did with these was basically, I did my normal workouts. So my normal intense weight training workouts. But then throughout the day, I would do these very light, low-intensity kind of pumping sets with with bands Mm. on particular body parts. Not super intense, wasn't getting sore, but just enough to give me a pump and to feel the muscle work. And the reason why I did this is I observed people who had muscular body parts who didn't work out, but just used them all the time. Again, Mm -hmm. like the male carriers of my family. I had uncles and aunts who... The rest of their body wasn't developed at all, but they had these really muscular calves, of course, body part that's supposed to be so difficult to develop, all because they walked so much as as male carriers. So I said, I wonder if I did this kind of low level of, of very frequent stimulation on the rest of my body, what would happen? And it blew me the fuck away. Yeah, I grew and responded in, in, incredibly, and it blew me away because it was, it was so low intensity. Mm-hmm. What do you think is happening with something like that?
3: So there, there is some, you like the research data, so I'll kind of give you yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, one of the, there's some interesting parallels. If you look at um, how much muscle people will put on with resistance exercise, um, you, it actually, the rate of muscle gain is comparable to that, which you see in like rats. They can actually do resistance exercise training in rats. Um, they can put backpacks on them and have them go up and train them to go up and down ladders and the muscle grow at a certain rate. Um, they've actually done it with cats, the Gagne person down in, uh, who uh, Jose Antonio worked with mm-hmm. in Texas. They trained the rats for a food reward to do like wrist flexion and you know, like the flexor carpial ulnaris muscle. And they saw some, maybe some hyperplasia there. Um, and you can also take rats and and I actually developed a model when I was in, in Texas in grad school, uh, where you can train the plantar flex like a little calf press. Mm. And you see that those animals grow at about the same rate as humans do when you have them do resistance exercise. But then there's something else you can do with animals that you really can't do with people. But there's one study that I found, which is kind of equivalent to it is they'll do a, um, it's called a compensatory hypertrophy model. So in the calves, in rats, you've got a, a soleus, a gastroc, and a plantaris. Plantaris is pretty big. Some humans have plantaris in, the, in both legs, or maybe just one, not everyone does. It's sort of a variable thing. It's not a very big muscle in people. But they'll cut like, for instance, the soleus and the plantaris in a rat. And the, those animals, the, after a couple of days, will walk around normally. No training, no um, resistance exercise, no high intensity, just walking around. And you can increase that muscle by like 50%, 60% wow. in a matter of a couple of months. That sh- it's just compensating for the loss of muscle mass from the other muscles that have been clipped mm. at the Achilles. So I, f- I did find a study, and it actually can get, I think I've seen about 100% increase in muscle size in the gastroc. Sometimes I'll cut the gastroc with the other muscles various ways you can do it. There was a study where they ha- they had people who had um, torn their Achilles and for whatever reason they couldn't repair it. So they take the flexor hallucis longus muscle, one that kind of lets you flex your big toe and they would connect that at the calcaneus to take the place of the, the plantar flexors that normally would be there. And when they did a, comp- a comparison of the normal leg versus the leg that had been surgically fixed, they got, the range was like 30 to 100% increase in size or difference in size.
2: And it's not intense work, it's just frequent. Walking around. Yeah, just, just walking use. around.
3: Yeah, so there, there's something to say for the extent to which muscle can grow if you just continuously load it throughout mm-hmm. the day with normal activity. The thing is, um, you don't get that kind of muscle growth in the whole body, even like over a lifetime of, of training. People mm-hmm. just don't increase their muscle mass by 100%. You can, get, you can get 50%, mm-hmm. pretty substantial, 70. Extreme responders maybe maybe better, but your nervous system just can't handle, you couldn't go in the gym and train for like eight hours no, a day. No, no, I wish. It just wouldn't, wouldn't work. <laughs> That's the limitation, your nervous system would fail, your endocrine system would fail, your immune system would fail, you'd just be sick and tired and you'd be exhausted, never happened. Sure. But the muscle can adapt to that. Mm-hmm. And that's the cool thing that you're doing with these trigger sessions, is that you were going in and just doing something that sort of simulated that the, chronic. The mechanical overload, signaling. The mechanical stimulating. Yeah. But, but only in a muscle or two, not the whole body. Right. It wasn't like squat all day long. No, no. You, but would, if you
2: did squat all day long, it would be very you could do it with a very low intensity because you have to be careful for the for the CNS. And that's the thing right. that I noticed. And, uh, it, it really blew me away because that, you know, gosh, when I first got into working out, I was under the impression you blast a muscle and then you leave it alone and let it rest and recover. Mm-hmm. So I used to literally, thats what I used to do. I'd go to the gym, hammer my legs, and I'd sit on the couch and watch TV <laughs> and just, no, got to let them rest and recover. <laughs> right. And then I remember one summer I worked with my dad, who's a blue collar worker, and we were just working. I was mixing cement, carrying buckets and whatever. And my muscles grew. Uh-huh. I was like, what the hell's going on? I'm moving more. <laughs> And I'm building more muscle, and, it, right. and and that's when I started kind of change my ideas around maybe what's going on. And mm-hmm. I think if you adjust intensity, that frequent le- those frequent levels of stimulation make a big difference. Now, yeah.
1: al- along those lines of of changing your way of thinking, you know, when you get somebody, what are what are the most common things that you you have to change in like a competitor? Like if I were to come to you and I'm like, okay, take me to the next level, Scott. What are like, are there specific areas you typically look at that are common offenders in the average lifter that's,
3: that's lifting? We actually kind of addressed this already. I will look at what they ha- haven't done that may work for people. Mm. So I, I had, I had one person come to me, um, not too long ago who wanted, wanted actually wanted me to train him in person and his legs were his weakness. And I said, well, we're going to train my, my system is a high frequency training system and you, you train legs three times a week. You don't, you don't do 20 sets each workout. But I said, you know, you'll go in, you'll do a heavy loading day. You'll do some what I call pump sets and do a cluster set configuration that I call a muscle round. And you train legs three times a week. And he's like, well, you can't train legs three times a week. I'm like, no, no, it's not going to be like an hour and a half of legs three times a week. It's just maybe, you know, you warm up and then you'll, you'll be done literally in like 10 minutes. And one of the days, you're, that's it. And he he wouldn't do it. <laughs> he literally he just would not not go and do it. He wouldn't. He couldn't wrap his mind around that. And I said, well, I'm not going to bring you into the gym and and just push you through once once weekly training sessions. Even though that was something he probably could have benefited benefited from, because he just didn't like to train legs. I wanted to, I want to optimize what's going to possibly work. So I'll look at the things the people haven't been doing, um, and that could be all sorts of things. I would I would agree mm-hmm. with you on that uh, the. I think for us,
1: we talk on the show a lot. When I look at the common person that's lifting, uh, I think frequency is probably one of the most underutilized tools uh, Mm -hmm. out there. And and we, we speculate that a lot of that has to do with the old you know, body part split mentality of just hammer the shit out of it one day a week. Right. And a lot of people would just greatly benefit by hitting that muscle group two or three times in the week consistently for a while, and they'll probably respond like
3: crazy. Yeah. And, and that's that's maybe those genetic differences in responders and non-responders when it comes to satellite cells mm-hmm. can explain that. It's also, I think psychologically, especially when it comes to legs, to know like you're going to go to the gym five times a week and three times of the week, you're going to have to do squats. or have to. Tr- that People don't want to do that. You have sure. to have some screws loose right. to want to go and train that way. But a lot of people do that with smaller muscle groups, calves, for instance. I can go in and train calves every day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. John Meadows was here. He, he would train calves every day unless his feet hurt. That was sort of the rule of thumb. <laughs> if his feet started to bother me, he'd want to get plantar fasciitis so he would he would not train calves. Or biceps, you could do that. But no one w- wants to do it with squats yeah. or leg presses or yeah. what have you. Right. So some of it's just the mentality. But there are those systems like um, milk and squats – or um, super squats.
2: Wait, milk and squats. Hold on. Is this where right. you drink a gallon this of milk a day? This is the Yes. This is the gomad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've read about this. So this is where right. you literally drink a gallon of milk every day and squat every day. Right. Yeah. I, don't, yeah. I can't remember. There's various
3: variations yeah. on that. Yeah. I put
2: on 15 pounds. It's weird. Yeah. Well, right. yeah, you're, you're drinking 2000 calories of milk and right. you're squatting. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So excellent. Hey. The, the, here's a good question for you. Uh, you know, <clears throat> we've observed and it's widely understood in, in, in common knowledge, although it's just Disputed, that free weights tend to build more muscle, uh, especially in, in beginner and intermediate, than machines do. Hmm. Is that true? And if it is, why would that be true? Like, why would a back squat build more muscle than a leg press, or you know, a deadlift more than a machine row, or something like that?
3: Could be a couple of different reasons. For instance, there's there's one one study that I cite in my fortitude training book where they looked at muscle activation. Um, I think it was in the biceps or the elbow flexures, and. Of uh, holding a weight with a, that required a given amount of torque or a given amount of force versus pushing on a, on a dynamometer mm. and holding the weight requires some balance. And because of that balance, you've got those accessory muscles that are involved, and this would go for any free weight versus a machine. Um, you've got, uh, you get greater activation in that mm. muscle. So the EMG was actually higher. And one of the things that probably is involved with muscle growth, I could almost say without, without a doubt, is that, and we've talked about this sort of indirectly, is novelty of stimulus. Mm. So if you go and do, uh, you'll see this with the um, repeated bout effect. If you go and do an exercise you haven't done, this could be someone who's been training for years. Let's say you haven't done full deadlifts. Mm-hmm. You've been training all those muscles really hard, as hard as you could, but you just haven't done full deads. And then you go in and you have a big dead day you'd be sore as crap. Oh, oh, yeah. It'll just whack you. Absolutely. But if you start doing deads every week or every other back day or what have you, you're not nearly as sore. One of the ways in which that might be occurring is a shift in your nervous system, learning how to activate that those muscles with a little bit of a cleaner activation pattern. So those on and off rotation amongst motor mm-hmm. units, turning on them at a certain frequency, which is best for producing a smooth titanic contraction in those, in those fibers those sorts of things you get better at. Whereas you can imagine if you had a nervous system that was just really shaky, and you're just, as soon you'll see this, of course. When oh, you yeah, when you take
2: time off threshold. the gym.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So so that shakiness is indicative of this nervous system not quite knowing how to activate as best as it possibly could. That's the type of thing that's going to produce muscle soreness because mm. um, those fibers being turned on and off. Um, the contractile lattice is sliding back and forth on itself. It's causing damage. Yeah, you're going to cause damage. So free weights, in, in that sort of subtle way, you um, could potentially cause more muscle damage. Not that you want to damage the muscle per se, Mm -hmm. but if you look at um, like pure eccentric training versus pure concentric training, they've done some meta-analysis where they looked at this. You get a little bit better growth from the eccentrics. Mm -hmm. You get more soreness from the eccentrics. You can still get growth from isometrics and concentrics, but there's something about the free weights in terms of maybe getting greater activation and potentially causing a little more damage, which initiates that whole mm. remodeling response, mm-hmm. where you get more more myofibrils, et cetera, et cetera. Et yeah, cetera. see, this the, I,
2: I'm mm. I'm in the same camp as you. That's what I think as well. But then it starts to break down when you go extreme balance. Like, oh, cool. So if balancing things then require you know uh, builds more muscle, then why don't I stand on a physio ball right. and you right. know hold one dumbbell up in the air? And that's just because the load isn't enough?
3: Well, then the activation goes down. They've done those studies, Oh, too. really? Yeah, because okay. then, then you've got such a balanced task that you can't activate the... You, your mind-muscle connection's gone. You're, you're trying to do like a dumbbell fly on a on, a, on a, uh, a Swiss ball, and you're like rolling all over the place, and you can't you can't lift the same load. You can't even mm-hmm. come close. Mm-hmm. I mean, unless you want to like potentially burst the ball, then you've got another <laughs> problem. But right. someone who could use 100-pound dumbbells is if they've got a really difficult balance task is not going to be able to use a hundred pound dumbbells. Mm, mm. And that's going to tell you to some degree, they're not going to activate the pecs in the same way. Interesting. The other thing with, with free weights that I, th- and psych- psychology is, is, is such a big deal. Exercise physiologists sometimes will just say oh, the brain's just a big block, black box. You know, we don't really worry about it. But <laughs> if you think about the people who are, and the mentality that comes with free weights, just think about your average guy who goes in the gym, you know, who's thinking about what do you bench? Um, and he's comparing himself. Everyone knows what's on the bar with free weights. People don't know what's on the machine when you put the pin in there. Mm. There's no comparison. So if you got you know, 135, you see the young kids who go in there, they've got 135 on the bar, they, they, won't, they don't want to do 95 because they know that makes them look like a wimpy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they want to do heavier loads. So free weights, I think just from a sort of a psychosocial perspective, lend themselves better to training harder, and the people that have the mentality, like, like Jordan Peters, for instance, mm-hmm. um, they want to move the biggest loads they possibly can. And the people that want to make, get the most muscle growth often realize that the, hardest, the harder way there is often going to be the most productive. Mm. It's not always the case. Um, the counter, the counterpoint to that is that sometimes, and I did this with squats for years, squats never did much for my legs. I trained, I got it to do in a 585 pound squats for reps. I just got a big glutes. I didn't get the leg growth I wanted, just the biomechanics and everything I possibly could.
2: You're just glute dominant and I with just that.
3: I was just really, really glute dominant in my low back. Actually, I got good back growth from it. Mm. Um, every and, bikini model's dream. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So uh, you, do, you can get a bit of mind-muscle connection if you find a nice loading curve or good biomechanics in a machine. Some machines just feel phenomenal. It's like this chest press, this, this particular converging chest press with this cam on it just has a phenomenal loading curve. I don't feel like I'm using my triceps or my anterior delts at all. It's just brilliant. Mm-hmm. That's going to be a great machine if you progressively overload on it. Mm-hmm. Whereas for some people, okay, every time I, I warm up on the bench press and I feel my rotator cuff, mm-hmm. just both sides, just one is like dripping half. Probably not a good exercise.
2: Yeah, yeah. And the other thing about free weights too is when you use a machine, you have to move based on the the way the machine moves. Whereas free weights follows the person. So whether you're five five or, or six foot, the bar follows you versus the other way around. Right. What about advanced uh, training techniques? You know, things that we wouldn't necessarily recommend to the average person, but things you might utilize in advanced training. For example, uh, four reps or partial reps or. Uh, weighted stretches in between sets or, mm. you know, those types of things. Like, where do you, do you see lots of value in those and which ones do you use? If yeah, you is use there a hierarchy
3: one? of those? Yes. Um, gosh, there's, there's so many p- bits and pieces there. All those intensification techniques um, have to be used very carefully because I, the way I look at things is that the limitation is your nervous system. To some degree, the muscle can handle all sorts of things. Um, that the nervous system can't like we talked about with comparing animal muscle growth with Mm -hmm. humans um, resistance training versus those special compensatory hypertrophy types of things Um, I like to use you didn't mention this one but cluster sets Mm. Um, I have a muscle this is what DC training doctor training is rest pause sets and those rest pause sets actually each of the segments of a rest pause set would be taken to failure I like to use uh, a muscle round. I've modified this, I took this from the, the, t- the name from something called Titan Training um, that was very instrumental in me developing Fortitude Training as it, as it now, now is. And it's a way to bring yourself closer to failure and accumulating those high quality um, one or two reps in reserve uh, contractions with only one failure point. So in, in the case of a muscle round, you're doing sets of four On about a one to one work to rest ratio with a load that would, would, for most people, be about a 15 rep max if you just did a normal straight set.
2: So give me an example. Yeah, Uh, yeah. uh, Give me an example of an exercise and what that would look like.
3: Let's take a biceps curl. So let's say you could do 100 reps for 100 pounds for 15 reps if you just did a normal straight set with stress control. So in this case, you take that 100 pounds and you do a set of four, and you can either watch your watch or you could take five breaths. So you do a set of four, five breaths, set of four five breaths, a set of four, five breaths, a set of four, five breaths. And maybe in that fifth or sixth set, you would reach a failure point. So let's say you, let's say you go five sets of four and then you get into the sixth set and you fail at your second rep. Mm-hmm. So you've, you've now completed 22 reps
2: of something that you could normally only do 15 with.
3: Right. And you ha- only had one failure point. And the way oh, I've it, I said, yeah, so it's
2: five five breaths or five seconds, or ten ten seconds, about ten seconds yeah. in between.
3: Usually, that's it. If you're training legs, counting your breaths is a no go because you're just going to be breathing like a locomotive. <laughs> yeah. Just you don't even want to do that. So okay, you have to so, watch your watch. So you do
2: four reps, take take ten seconds. Four reps, ten. Sec- is it always four reps? That's the way. Yeah, that's mm. that's
3: how he had it in Titan training. Okay. You, there's nothing particularly magic about the four reps per se. It just seems to work out nicely. I played with different numbers. Okay. There's another system called myo reps, um, and Dante say Trudell system he's a little, little bit different because he takes each of those segments to failure
2: so he goes failure rest yeah. failure rest you now might, will, might
3: you, will you run a full
1: cluster workout like that where you are doing every muscle group like that or what would a workout look like with that cluster set in there
3: yeah so I have different days I, I utilize a daily undulating periodization scheme so okay. one day let's say for legs you would do what I call loading sets these are like 6 to 12 rep range The next day you train legs, you do pump sets, and these are fun. They're brutal, but they're fun. It's anything like about a 15 to 20 to a 30 rep range. But you do all sorts of partials. There are various ways. You could do reverse 21s. Right, we're
1: just chasing Mm. the pump on that day. Yeah,
3: but it's metabolic stress, Mm. and it ends up giving you a great pump. And then the next time you train legs, you would do muscle rounds. And I've got the system I've set up is I have three different volume tiers. So depending on how someone well, someone recovers, they would pick the volume tier that they're going to use for that day. So someone who just can handle a ton of volume or that maybe they've, they've decided to set up a mesocycle where they're going to go up in their volume and come back down in their volume because they like that. Or they're just completely auto-regulating. They go into that particular week, they like, I feel great. I got a week off of work. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no stress at home. I'm sleeping. I'm eating great. They might do the heavier, the higher volume tier. Mm-hmm. And they might do like two, two sets of like a leg press and a Smith squat for a muscle round each uh-huh. and then maybe like a knee extension and then a hamstring curl of some sort.
1: That's it. So you're really only doing, you know, it's you got the two cluster sets you just said and then maybe one other one after that. And that then,
3: on that point, but, but you've also done more, you've, that's also the third time you train legs that
1: way. Right, right, right. So no,
2: you're doing it once a week, uh, That the cluster sets are once a week but having trained legs traditionally or more traditionally the other times. Yeah, we?
3: There's a heavy, heavy day and a light day and then the muscle round day.
2: Right, right. So the
3: muscle rounds, the, the, the idea there is to accumulate training volume and make use of the fact the muscle can adapt much more readily than the nervous system and the other systems by getting 22 reps as opposed to just 15. So you get 22 reps of, of, uh, of loading on that muscle for a given muscle round, mm-hmm. in that example, as opposed to 15, but only one failure point.
2: Wow! Now, when you apply this to athletes, do they see crazy results from just applying these cluster sets? why well, have people do the whole system;
3: everything's okay. kind of integrated. So, um, yeah, I, I've seen. <laughs> I, I mean, I, 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 the, my favorite example was a guy. Uh, he was a math teacher from the UK, is mathematician, and um, so you know he taught calculus to gifted students. He was very mathematically inclined, logged everything, and he also could eat like none other. We would I use the nutrient timing approach, and so he was like pushing down. Thousand grams of carbs during his post-workout period some nights, and but he's okay with that because on on training days he was a little bit hungry given how I timed the nutrients, and he came he went through one blast which would typically take about maybe six weeks, you do a deload, a cruise is what Dante mm-hmm. Trudel called it. I've got a way of doing that based on the research too, and he came back in and he looked at his logbook to see what weights he was going to use. And he picked the first day was loading set day and he picked the weight that he figured I think he was getting like eight or nine reps with. So he figured he'd just stick with that because he hadn't gotten to the top of the 12 rep range. And he did like his set and he got like 24 reps. And he's like, what? the?" He was pissed because he's like, I'm a mathematics teacher. I can't I can't count weight. What did I do wrong? And he kept on doing like that. He had he had he had really deloaded so well that he was like almost doubling his reps. Wow. He just timed it really, really well. He was really quite upset. He 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 went through a couple workouts like that and mm-hmm. finally figured out that that was happening universally. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that was because he some of that was just of the novelty of training. Mm-hmm. Um, there's various things that I think are going on there. One, he, you know, he was getting used to training hard with those heavier loads in maybe a way that he hadn't. Um, also. When you do a high, the high rep, the pump sets are, can be some of the most brutal aspects of the training. Yeah, you
2: don't need to convince me. Yeah, they're, <laughs> I know really, yeah,
3: they're really, really hard. So like you do a set like that where, you know, it's like you're, you're saying hello to God at the end of the set. And then you, when you just do a set of 12, it's heavy. Well, it's not nearly as hard. Mm-hmm. So you, you develop sort of a different mentality that allows you to push harder in those loading sets in the way you did. And so those things, I think they interact mm. in a certain way. Um, Then the the thing about the cluster sets as well, the muscle rounds is probably that um, you get to really realize what failure is for you. If um, they've done studies with, uh, with untrained people and have them try to estimate how many reps they can get with a given load and they're way off there, they'll underestimate. Oh, like I, I even find reps. that
2: with myself. I don't train to failure very often at all. Uh, and when I do, I'm always shocked that I'm like, Oh, this is the next rep. This is the only one I'm going to be able to do the last one. I'm like, no, I think I can do another one. Yeah. It turns out to be five more reps. Right. Cause I just, your gauge for how much you can do, you have to test it every once in a while. Otherwise you have no, you kind of have no idea, or at least your, your idea is, is is way off. You talk a lot about balancing the, the central nervous system with the muscular system in terms of you know, intensity and volume and, and, you know, muscles can take a lot. The CNS is the one that you got to kind of watch a little bit. Mm-hmm. What are some techniques that you use for your athletes on allowing their CNS to be able to take more? Cause you know, theoretically they could, they could just work out their muscles all the time, but you got to get them to manage your CNS. Is it, do you use techniques like sauna, you know, cold, you know, rinses, sleep, are there supplements that you use to help them out?
3: Sauna can be phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm rebuilding my house now, and I want to get a sauna in there. If, if I can squeeze it in, I can get my contractor to kind of do what I'm hoping he'll do. Mm-hmm. Um, just for clearing uh, uh, all the chemicals that are in our environment. Mm-hmm. I know you guys have talked about everything from you know xeno, xenoestrogens and um, things in our water supply. Tampa has horrible, horrible water. Oh, yeah. So that can be phenomenal. People people get a nice anxiolytic effect. I'm really big on, um, on uh, sleep aids sleeps like we sleep horribly mm-hmm. in our society it's really really badly so I will sometimes dip into chinese medicine and try to help people with sleep in that in that regard are there so, some
2: good herbs that you can, you typically will recommend
3: uh, kind of depends on the person sure. and what's going on there's different there's different reasons why someone might there's probably about 8 different diagnoses that okay. would just sound like gobbledegook if i if i told mm-hmm. you what they are but um, one is ziziphus Okay. Is um, Swan Sao Ren is the name of, of uh, the herb. And you can buy that. It's a, one of those ones that's, it does have kind of a, um, uh, a sedative-like effect mm-hmm. for many people. I had a client come in once who, um, I, if I recall, she was a young woman. She had a sugar daddy and she didn't have anything to do with her life. And she would just stay up and play video games. And, and she came in and um, she wasn't sleeping like at all. And we gave her... Um, this this herbal formula. She came back the next week for her next visit and I was like, how's your sleep going? She's like, I'm sleeping all the time. It's like, oh, that's awesome. How much sleep are you getting night?" She's like, 20, 22 hours. Whoa. Like, w- w- no, hold on. <laughs> like, what do you mean? It's like, no, I sleep all the time. I just, I just take the herbs and I sleep all day long. I don't even play the video games. It's like, well, she could do that because she had nothing to do. <laughs> yeah. So that was too much. That was a little, yeah. a little excessive. But uh, that's a great one for many people, and it's one of those ones. Normally, in Chinese medicine, you do a diagnosis, if you, you want know, do a pattern differentiation, and then you apply that paradigm of Chinese medicine very specifically to the person. Mm. That's one that helps a lot of people. So,
2: What but, about uh, uh, ashwagandha? I know that's a, a considered an adaptogenic herb. I've used it myself. I really like combining it with caffeine, one of my favorite combinations. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how does that affect the, the, the CNS, or is that one of those supplements that can help that?
3: Yeah, that's a ad- that's a phenomenal adaptation. Okay. It's been used in Ayurvedic medicine for years and years and years. Mm. Yeah, and I'm actually I actually use that myself. Oh, do you? okay. Yeah, yeah, and I and I suggest that to people. How do you use it? Just to, just in the mornings. It seems to have kind of a nootropic effect. Okay, um, it doesn't impact sleep in in me, but sometimes people will notice that too. Chinese med- for instance ginseng is one in Chinese medicine you have to be careful some of those will see I can't sleep.
2: I can't do ginseng I I saw an acup- I used to go to an acupuncturist for a while and um, she did the test on me and she's like oh you have too much yang energy or whatever and so red ginseng was wrong for me because right. and I told her this I've taken ginseng in the past uh-huh. and if I take it once I'll feel stimulated if I take it again I start to feel feverish yes. and I almost start to feel kind of depressed and in uh, like I have the flu almost, and mm-hmm. she said it's because it's it's strengthening your yang, which is already you have too much. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So she was she was telling the truth. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. That's that. Yeah,
3: <laughs> definitely give people insomnia with that. You, people, it's a it's a lung chi tonic in Chinese medicine. So some people have undergone a lot of a lot of sadness um, when sadness impacts the lung and the lung energy. So people like they're really,
2: <sighs> mm, the side
3: really sad. Yeah. So you want to give them that, but then they can't sleep. That doesn't help. Hmm. So that was a mistake. That was like a beginner's mistake we'd always make, and it's like, no, 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 you're gonna just give them insomnia. That's not good. Find another way around that.
2: Yeah, so I, the, you're the perfect person to ask this. I, I did some experiments a few months ago, and I've, I've replicated a few times just on myself, um, and and I was really blown away by uh, how my body responded. So what I, I, I what I did was is I had a whole day where I had nothing to do other than write, uh, you know, content for our, our, our business. So I was going to be home all day long and I have a home garage. Uh-huh. And so what I did was I picked three exercises and I did uh, not really heavy load, but heavy enough to feel. And I did three sets of five reps of each of those exercises every other hour uh-huh. all day long. So right. I must have done about seven workouts. Okay. And I theorized that I would start to feel stronger as the day progressed. And then I would start to feel weaker as the day progressed. And that's exactly what happened. I got stronger yeah. by the third or fourth workout doing that i noticeably i noticeably built muscle and each time i've done that those all day workouts it's sub it's it's not failure i'm not going to failure it's not super intense right but if you add up the total volume i'm doing an incredible yes. amount of volume and sets have you ever experimented with like all day workouts like that or what what do you think may be happening there
3: it's it's this chronic overload thing we've, yeah. we've talked about
2: it's almost like an extended version of your cluster set uh, yeah, I guess you could say. <laughs> nah, I'm not, not quite, really. but yeah. yeah. But, but it's it's just like
3: the mechanic who's constantly doing the work or when you were started working with your dad, your yeah. legs grew. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably like late afternoon is when you felt the strongest. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah, what yeah. the research generally suggests. Performance is, is enhanced at that time point. Yeah, it, so, was, it
2: was really weird, you know? Yeah. And I could feel myself almost building muscle doing mm-hmm. this, and you, you add up the total volume, and it was just... I don't remember how many total sets I did, but it was insane. Oh,
3: I can absolutely believe it. It's, it's funny. I just did a, I did a charity event this last weekend with Paul Carter. He writes for T nation phenomenal mm-hmm. guy. Um, Paul, uh, how's it going brother? Um, and we talked about, uh, one of the questions that was asked was, uh, a woman who was working with working out with another woman who wanted to gain weight. We're unusual. She wanted to lose weight. How should our workouts differ? And it points back to this idea that people we've we've created the workout as like this one hour period of time where you do everything you're going to do to try to get muscle growth. And we don't we ignore the idea um, that you're pointing out there is that literally throughout the day, if you had a life and a lifestyle that would allow you to do that, you could train that way. Mm mm-hmm. Um, it's not something like you're an unusual person, I think, in this regard and that you want to experiment. Oh yeah. This is your, your curiosity is almost limitless. Right. I'm guessing. So you're willing to do that. Plus you don't mind the pain and misery of picking things up repeatedly. I'm staying at home and and working
2: out all day. Nobody wants to do (laughs) it. People
3: don't, people (laughs) don't, most people don't want to go to the gym. That's why exercise adherence is so poor. But yeah, that's a perfectly viable way. Again, we're just trying to get the callus to, to develop. In terms of the muscle size, Mm. I think of it, uh, I've used, there's so many analogies, but I think of it, if you wanted to get a good suntan, would you go to the tanning booth and like just blast yourself for an hour? Mm -hmm. You just get burnt. No. You go out in the sun every day.
2: Yeah. I use that exact, by the way, I use that exact (laughs) analogy probably like 10 times. Yeah. (laughs) It's great. Yeah, it's a perfect analogy. (laughs) It is. It's all adaptation systems. Yeah. You repeated
3: know, exposure like that's, that, that's that's sending the signal it's like hey by the way we need browner skin we need browner skin we need bigger muscles we need bigger muscles again and again this, if the system gets it like once a week so there, there are so many ways that muscle can adapt and the nervous system can adapt um, for that infrequent type of challenge the nervous system can just sort of figure out mm-hmm. you know how to activate the muscle better you can just increase enzymatic capacity to improve mm-hmm. fatigue it's just not enough in, in my mind, to to it seems like at least to warrant for most people really much of an adaptive response because it's so infrequent.
2: I I agree. It's just, it's interesting when you examine all the different training methodologies, how they can be so, they can be almost at odds. Like you had, you know, like Mike Mencer and heavy duty style training where you're hitting a body part once, absolute failure, leave it alone. Right. Arnold doing 20 sets per body part three days a week, you know, high volume, high pump, you, you still have bodybuilders on those two extremes, but I think rather than highlighting which one is the ideal, I think it's more just highlighting the difference in genetic variances would, my, would mm-hmm. be my opinion
3: yeah well like like as I said before, there are people that can do well with the once a week thing um, some of that probably there's there's at some point in time you're starting just to accumulate junk volume mm-hmm. so the recovery ability is gigantic. one of the things that kind of comes out when you um if you talk to, uh, there's a number of different things. We talked to high level pro bodybuilders is they, they know, like I trained with Dave Henry, I've coached Dave for mm-hmm. years. Every time Dave would we'd do a new exercise, you, I could always just tell from his biomechanics that he could activate the muscle mm-hmm. in a really, really good way. He he's very, very strong. So he didn't have any ego that made him want to like do sloppy reps to move weight around. Um, he also was just, was really hardy, just could recover from things really, really well. And, and I've run into this again and again and again. If you talk to high-level bodybuilders, pros, a lot of them are very, very relaxed people. They go in the gym and they can push themselves really hard, but they're not stressed. Mm. They're just chilling out most of the time. They're not like frantic running around like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. You will run into bodybuilders sometimes who are just the body dysmorphia is off the charts. They're constantly looking at themselves in the mirror. They're freaking out those are the ones a lot of times too, in order to get where they've gotten, have gone to you know, absolute extremes and drug use and mm-hmm. various other things. They're not the best. So Ronnie Coleman, I love, I, I think it's the unbelievable. He was a cop
2: for years while he was doing professional bodybuilding.
3: Right, and you see like in, in, the, in the, one of the videos, he just goes in, he's just totally relaxed, like nothing's bothering him. He had a, um, one of my favorite, I can't remember what it was he was saying, he's driving along in his car and he's, he's trying to, uh, the car's supposed to recognize what he's saying, like he's dialing a number. with with the uh, talk to text and he has to say it like five times you know in his thick Texas accent five, seven, one, four, three and he gets it wrong every time it doesn't bother him he's not (laughs) not stressed (laughs) by it one bit Jay Cutler's just as nice and relaxed as they get
2: Ben Pakulski's a good example Mm -hmm. you sit with that guy he's like a yogi floating off the couch I was just down at Ben's place a few days ago he's in Tampa
3: too yeah he's he's great Um, Dexter Jackson Mm -hmm. just laid back chill Sean Roden like you go down the list. A lot of those guys are really, so that behooves really good mm-hmm. recovery. There's other things that are involved. Yeah. We don't talk so, enough about the mm. stuff
2: you don't do or the stuff that you do when you're not training and not eating that impact muscle growth. Yeah. And I think that makes a huge, what you're saying makes a huge difference. Right? Absolutely. I know when I went through some of the most difficult, stressful times of my life, for sure my body was not responding to exercise oh, and yeah. I can never stop working out. Right. You, you know, you
3: can drop muscle really, really quickly when things are have gone mm-hmm. awry in your mm-hmm. life.
2: So yeah. I have, a, I have a question for you. Um, let's say you have somebody who's, who's been working out for years <coughs> and then they go on their first anabolic uh steroid cycle. Should they change their training? And if they do change their training, what would they change? What should they do? Mm.
3: Um. Well, my, I'm, my big thing is always get the most from the least. So, The idea would be that they don't all of a sudden go into some monstrous cycle that requires them to change a whole bunch of things. Mm. Um, I'm big on auto-regulating. That's how Fortis training is set up. So Listen to your body, basically. Listen to your body, choose the volume tier, choose the exercises that work for you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And when I just diet, it's based on the progress the person is making at the time, whether they're trying to gain muscle or lose fat. So if, for instance that person goes on a, like a moderate cycle, which would make sense um, because you play all your Trump cards as far as the chemistry goes, chances are you could, this is just sort of theoretical, but you would, you would lose that sensitivity in the future. If you just, someone just goes to like a two gram per week cycle. Sure. Um, you can only gain muscle so fast. Some people will just grow like weeds mm-hmm. and it don't really matter. It seems like in the long run, but you would want to get as much as you possibly can from the initial slight stimulus. And so do all the things you possibly can to increase food, to match that. If you can handle more training, then do so. But the other thing that, to recognize is that now if you are stronger and you do have somewhat of a toxic load coming from those drugs, um, you might just keep the volume the same because mm. now you're lifting heavier loads. And Dorian Yates is, the, is the, kind of the quintessential example of this where he found that he had to train with lower volume over, over time, over the years, the stronger he got. Because
2: it's more damage on his body, just the weight alone.
3: Yeah, just the, everything, and we we've talked about on it's it's been kind of a hot topic. You probably talked about uh, Brad Schoenfeld's volume study that.
2: No, no, I was bring that up though. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah.
3: So it it came out in this in this past year, and he, he uh, they found a uh, a dose response for training volume in terms of muscle growth, not for strength. Ironically enough, which mm-hmm. is kind of a a standout situation because that's not typically what you would find. But they had in their highest volume um, group, they were training for the lower body. I think it was 45 sets per week um, to failure. In like oh, wow. The, in like the eight to 12 rep range. Um, something like that. So that was like those workouts were like, they were going in and doing like five sets of squat to failure, eight to 12 rep range. And then two, like 90 seconds between sets. And then two minutes rest, they go to five. They'd start doing 90 seconds rest between sets of eight to 12 on a leg press. It was if you read through the, the methods, which which a lot of people don't do, they just read the abstract. And think, oh, okay, the more the more better. I can do this many sets. It was just it was diabolical. It would have mm-hmm. just it would have just been I, w- I would have had rhabdomyolysis and been hospitalized myself <laughs> mm-hmm. trying yeah. to do that because you know I, I would have been doing you know just crazy loads. Yeah. It just can't happen now. There's got to be so that's those were people who were resistance trained, but there had to have been a good number of reps in reserve really um, for them to have accomplished that. Mm-hmm. So though that kind of volume is not something you can handle when you already become pretty strong or you're getting stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, my, the, the main thing is that the stimulus needs to be balanced by recovery. So you of anything, if you want it, in my opinion, if, if someone gets on and they start making better gains and their gains are coming at a reasonable rate, um, Just allow the recovery to help with that. Mm. Don't 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 bite that urge to like. Okay, now I'm Superman. I got a turbocharger, and now now I can just go bonkers. Yeah, it may not be the case. Mm -hmm. You don't know.
2: Mm. And with anabolics, you talked about how there, there starts people stop responding because they've just been on them for too long. Is that receptor down regulation that's happening?
3: Yeah, so the, the literature there, the receptors don't seem to downregulate okay. um, in terms of the receptor density. They may mm. ev- even go up, but there's some desensitization mm. that's obviously happening there. Um, there also seems to be, like if you look at like that, um, the study by Jose Antonio we talked about, mm. and if you look at other studies looking at highly hypertrophied, hypertrophied muscle cells, there's some limit to how big the muscle cells can get too. So there's probably um, something in the muscle cell such that as it's growing and growing and growing, it's just gonna gonna slow down that rate of growth. It can only become so large so quickly. So I don't know what's going on exactly in terms of the molecular mechanisms mm-hmm. that would cause the desensitization. But it's like, gosh, because I've been online since the begin, literally the beginning of the internet, and people will always say, well, the receptor density doesn't go down. It's like, well, if there's no desensitization, this would be a really phenomenal by lack of biological negative feedback it's like well you could just keep taking drugs and you would just That's you know it. grow to the size of the michelin man you know, yeah right yeah. there'd be no limit you know everyone would look like big rami and then bigger yep. mm. there has to be some limiting by bio- negative feedback putting things in in uh to a stop or bringing things to a standstill. i don't know what it is though yeah in interesting of, yeah.
2: interesting well shit man fascinating uh, and fun interview yeah, you're yeah. you're full of information. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I could talk to you for another two or three hours. <laughs> I yeah. get to, yeah. 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 The questions aren't slowing down at no, all. No, no, yeah. not at all. No, I really appreciate you coming on the show, this man, and answering some of these questions. Definitely, Absolutely. definitely. I mean, I think our uh, a lot of our audience that's interested in the in the intricacies of muscle building and training, um, and especially the advanced techniques and stuff that you're talking about, I think is really going to help them out. Cool. So I appreciate you coming so. on, man. That's part of my mission, Definitely. As much nice. as Thank, Thank you very Scott. much, man. You're welcome. Yeah. Thank You're you welcome.
3: Thanks, guys.
0: Thank you for listening to Mind Pump. If your goal is to build and shape your body, dramatically improve your health and energy, and maximize your overall performance, check out our discounted RGB Super Bundle at mindpumpmedia.com.